0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. I'm Dean. No, no banter chit-chat here.
1: Why? Because
0: <laughs> you hate it. No. Oh.
1: Okay, well, we have some shout-outs though, right? And by we the did... way, it's just us today because the kids are terrible people. I'm just kidding, they're not really terrible They're
0: people. not. They have their own lives. Imagine that. Stop it. Um, yes, we are going to do some shout-outs. But based... Yeah, but based on that, I think... Periodically, we might want to introduce ourselves and who we actually are to each other. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> because people who just like randomly come up on the podcast and start listening at episode, you know, 182 may not figure out that we're actually a family oh. and that we're married and <gasps> that we're old. We see... <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ. We say our names. I think that's plenty. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, go ahead with the shouts.
0: Oh, shouts. Christine... And Lisa have recently sent us emails telling us how much they enjoy our podcast.
1: That's always welcome, by the way. Christine was the one who corrected our answered our confusion about the pronunciation Ske- of certain Ske- words in English in Australia. Yeah,
0: and, and, skeletal and urine.
1: Yeah, which is good to know. I feel, and just let us have apologies right now, from Carrie and I, that we feel terrible. How many times we've made fun of that certain podcaster for saying skeletal and "urine"? It turns out that's the way you.
0: There to say are that. other words he pronounces weird. too. True, but may, I'm just going to assume every time is how
1: they pronounce them <laughs> in Australia. Yeah, they probably I feel think we're just weird. awful. And do they say "urination" or "urination"? I don't know what the answer to that is. And I, Christine, Christine, tell us. <laughs> and Lisa was. Um, Enjoying, I think, Tom Brown's body, right? Correct. Right now, an episode we did a while ago. And she does not like Unself, unself mysteries, mysteries. And she also is something of a medium. So I'm two things for Lisa. Lisa, I'm really happy you're listening. Two things though. One is eventually you're gonna hear us bag on mediums, or at least me. <laughs> yeah. And just no, and in fact, all of the, all of the listeners now, I have, you know, whenever we state an opinion, we may be completely full of shit and completely wrong and absolutely acknowledge that. And Maybe. Carrie's K- just about to say that I <laughs> usually am. So don't don't fret that I, I'm not a huge believer in medium ships. UBU. You you. And also, today we hope you enjoy <laughs> an unsolved mystery. It is the Texarkana Moonlight Murder mystery that has been unsolved for over 70 years.
0: Seven, zero years? Yes. I thought you said over seven years. (laughs) No,
1: that would not be that impressive. So we start on Friday, February 22nd in 1946, not long after the end of World War II. Correct. Jimmy Hollis, 25 years old. He's cruising through the dark roads on the outskirts of Texarkana, Texas with his 19-year-old girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, L-A-R-E-Y.
0: Mary Larry.
1: Mary Jean Larry. Thank you very much. We're going to call her Mary, Carrie, and hope you won't make fun of her, because if you do, you're going to feel bad in a minute.
0: No, I'm not. But parents, think about okay. think about this when you name your
1: You're right. Children. Jimmy was an experienced young man, because at 25, he had already been married and separated.
0: Oh, wow. Happens.
1: Does. But... It also happened to Mary because though she was still a teenager, Mary too had recently separated from Roland Larry, <laughs> a man she had married at age 16. Oh, wow. When she lied about her age on the marriage certificate to avoid the need for parental permission. In the South, I didn't think you needed parental permission at 16. I thought that, that was go for it at 14, but apparently not in Texas at least. And by the way, there's your answer. His name was Roland Larry. So her married name was Mary Larry.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, her parents are absolved. From your crime, because you believe that's a crime. Well,
0: I assumed incorrectly you did. that the 19-year-old was unmarried. She had
1: been married, and now she was <laughs> also like Jimmy. She was separated.
0: She needs to go back to her maiden name then.
1: Probably so. They if had, she
0: gets the chance.
1: We'll see, won't we? <laughs> Mary and Jimmy had met just two, three, two or three weeks before that night. They had been out to the movies already. They were on a double date with Jimmy's brother and Jimmy's brother's girlfriend. But Jimmy, I guess seeing them as a third and fourth wheel had dropped off his brother and his girlfriend at home and then he went back in the car with Mary. And he, apparently he said, you know, he knew a place on the way back to Mary's home. She lived in a town called Hooks, which is about 20 minutes away. So she didn't actually live in Texarkana. But uh, so he said, I know a place on the way back. It's nice and quiet. It's only 11 o'clock. We have some time before we have to be home. She agreed. What are you? Carrie appears to be scowling. I'm are just you?
0: nodding. Okay. Uh-huh. Right. I'm keeping up with the story.
1: Okay. I thought you were already passing judgment.
0: Oh, no, okay, I'm good. not okay. flabbergasted at all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They're so, adults. They're
1: fine. Um, yes, barely. So Jimmy pulled off Robertson Road. Onto a dirt lane at about a quarter before midnight, and this is, was a place that every kind of local knew it as a lovers' lane. Mm-hmm. Again, it was quiet. It was kind of semi-rural out there. It's outside of town, outside of at least the immediate, you know, core of the city. He pulled onto an unpaved road and went about fifty feet. Along, I guess, the, I guess a meadow, you know, an easily drivable meadow. meadow. Sure. And it's the area is kind of surrounded by shrubbery and trees, so it's very quiet. Again, it's it's very sort of protected. He parked near a line of trees, at sort of the
0: edge of the meadow,
1: and <coughs> turned the car off.
0: And it made that sound. It when did. He turned the car off.
1: <laughs> he made that. Yeah, well, a car. When you turn the car back in 1946, cars went <coughs> when they <laughs> sure they did. Were, yeah, no, you didn't. No, they that's didn't. a technical. That's true. Uh, uh-huh. Trust me. Don't look it up. Ten heavy make-out minutes later, Jimmy spotted someone approaching the car. This was annoying. He had yeah, a I'll plan. Bet. He had some business to attend to. So Jimmy was kind of leaned, turned over to tell the interloper to get the hell out of here. Go away. Wasn't get your doing own girl. Anything. Yeah, yeah. But then he noticed something a little strange about the guy who was approaching the car. He noticed that the man had something over his head. Uh-oh. Some kind of a mask or something. Just some kind of a head covering. He couldn't tell at that distance. And again, it's nighttime. He the man got closer, and Jimmy and Mary saw that it looked like it was a pillowcase or some kind of a something like that tied over his head with eyes cut out. Oh gosh. It's kind of like a, a kid's bad ghost halloween
0: yeah. costume
1: but under the circumstances a little scary the man came toward jimmy on the driver's side of the car and he lifted up a flashlight and into his eyes blinding him immediately blinding jimmy immediately so jimmy thought the man must have like like he he thinks he knows me was his first thought that this guy maybe he knows me, or something like that, so he's just coming to check and make sure I'm who he thinks I am. Yeah. He's not, at this point, scared at all. Well, that's weird. Well, I know. It is a little bit, but he's just, that's, you know, you, your mind doesn't race to serial killer right away. It
0: does when you see somebody has a pillowcase with eye holes cut yeah. out of it over his head. Yeah, that's a little spooky. You don't think, oh, this is an old friend of mine.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Jimmy. Jimmy's an innocent. He did. So Jimmy, I guess, rolled the window down and starts to say something. And the man responds with, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Yeesh. Now I'm, I'm sure Jimmy is disabused of the idea that uh-huh. this is just some friend of his. And that's also when they notice that the man has a pistol in his hand. Okay. So it's, it's, it's getting worse.
0: It is. Yes. Yeah.
1: The man told the couple to get out of the car. He wanted, and he wanted both of them to come from the driver's side door. I'm assuming, so I, they couldn't so, flee, so yeah. especially she Mary couldn't flee. Yeah. The man growled for Jimmy to, quote, take off your fucking britches. Ooh. With As Mary begged him, just do what he says, because at first Jimmy's saying, no, nah, I'm not going to do that, and so yeah. Mary says, just do what he says, and, and we'll get out of this. So Jimmy starts to remove his britches. When he lifts his head up from having done that, the man viciously smashed him across the head twice with the butt of the gun. Yikes. As hard as he could.
0: Wait, for people who don't understand old-timey language, britches are pants. Yes, britches <laughs> are pants. Old-timey,
1: <laughs> I don't know if that's the whole country said britches, or is that more of a South or Midwest? I don't know. I right. never said the word britches yet, in my no, life. Yeah.
0: yeah. No. But, you know, we watch old movies. Yes. <laughs> britches. Little, Little House on the Prairie, I'm sure they said britches. Some yeah. versions. Yeah, because wasn't a nickname, Little Britches? I have no idea. Somebody's, yeah, it was. Didn't watch it. Oh, you missed out. No, I really did. Do. I don't feel like I did. I'm sure we can find it on... I'm
1: sure we don't need to. Old
0: streaming service.
1: Nope. <laughs> the, so he hits him across the head twice with the butt of the gun. The sound was so sharp that Mary thought that Dacker had shot Jimmy. So really? that's The butt of a gun on his skull made that kind of a sound. Think about that. Wow. It fractured Jimmy's skull and he was knocked out. He was unconscious.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. She said that... I learned later that the sound was his skull cracking. Jimmy is what uh, Mary said later to
0: police. Oh, God.
1: Naturally, she thought this was a robbery.
0: Right. Mary. Yes, as would I.
1: So she grabbed Jimmy's wallet in his pants there on the ground, and she showed him that, look, Look, we don't have any money. Our have very little money. You can take it. Go ahead and, and leave us alone. And they, She said they'd spent most of the money at the movies. So, quote, it's from Mary. She said, I picked up Jimmy's pants and took his billfold out of his pocket. And I said, look, he doesn't have any money. But the man told me I was lying, and he he said that I had a purse. But I told him that I didn't. Then he hit me. I thought with a piece of iron pipe and knocked me to the ground. But I managed to get up.
0: Hmm.
1: It was likely, though, that the gun that the attacker had hit Jimmy with was the same weapon he used to hit her. Why he shot she thought it was an iron pipe is is not clear.
0: Or or he could have hit her with a flashlight. It's possible
1: too. You're right. That would feel. Yeah, you're right. I it just said a flashlight. And again, they didn't get a good look at the actual flashlight because it was in their eyes. But yeah. yeah, you're right. That's a good point. It could have been the flashlight for sure. Maybe it was. So he has a flashlight in one hand, a mm-hmm. gun in the other, hits Jimmy with the gun, hits her with presumably the flashlight, if Carrie's theory is right. And yeah. I, I pretty I, quick one thinking packet, on my part, I is think. Damn, you should be a police officer. <laughs> yeah. We, I've often said you really should be like the chief of detectives for a major <laughs> municipal <laughs> crime unit.
0: Sure. You'd I'll be start. No, you should. Going on monster.com. Okay.
1: <laughs> Experience <laughs> a lot of 48 hours and a podcast. <laughs> I think that's plenty. They'll scoop you up. Mm-hmm. She struck her on the head. She fell down, and the man shouted at her to get up and run. So she did.
0: In his exact pattern, I hope.
1: In a zigzag pattern. Uh, I don't think so. She just booked it. Got the hell out of there. So she runs across the field that they're in, right? And she runs, I think, away from the road toward a ditch in somewhere in the distance. And he shouts at her that, turn around and run the other way. No idea why he does that. <laughs> it's strange to me. I, and everything I read is now like, why did he do that? Yeah. I don't know why he does that. It's very odd. But he told her to run the other way. And so she did. There's another version of this, by the way, and this that which of course there usually is, and these things is amazing because you have contemporaneous newspapers and things like that, but all all the sources tend to get multiple versions. This other version has the masked man knocking Jimmy out with the butt of his gun, like we said, at which time Mary immediately bolted. And Mary then spotted a car and etc. But uh, we, her own testimony says that now he hit her. She fell to the ground. He shouted for her to get up and run. He then told her to run the opposite way. way. So she did. And she ran toward the road.
0: Yeah. Yikes.
1: She spotted a car there and she ran for that car. As she neared it, though, she saw that the car was empty. And so the thought has to come to her mind. It's that his car. Is his car. Is this the attacker's car? So she just kept running oh, right by it. So now he, he's out there behind her in the field. She's yeah. running along the road now, past his car. And she says, quote, Just as I got past the car, the man overtook me. The attacker had chased her down from behind, and he knocked her to the ground. Again. So I, again, is he yeah. doing this for sport?
0: Sounds like it. It does, doesn't it? It's um, not good. So why would you run the way he told you to run?
1: Well, but if the way he told her to run was toward the, the road... That seems like this better place to, for her to run too, isn't it? I would think not into. Not if she's
0: trying to get away from him, because then right. he knows where she is. Well, I know but Still, I don't know. I don't know either.
1: So he chased her down. He knocked her to the ground again. The man then used a gun. The gun to sexually assault Mary. You mm. know, he was a, a, not a good person. He, at this point, though, headlights flash behind her, oh, and that's when the attacker apparently said better safe than sorry so he smacked her across the face several times and fled whether he's trying to kill her we don't know whether he intended to go back and kill jimmy we don't know it's not clear again if he used the gun or the flashlight here for these these last series of smacking her across the head with something heavy when mm. she was when the headlights came and she's on the road right so she gets up, she runs for her life, and the masked man is is presumably fleeing behind her. Presumably towards that must have really been his car, and he's he's getting the hell out of there. A few minutes later, as she's running a- along the road, she so so the, the headlights went by. Oh, because she okay. She's just running along the road, and she finally gets to a house. Again, again, this is kind of a semi-rural area. She gets to the nearest house. It took a few minutes for her to run to it. So she knocks on the door. She begs to let them use the telephone, and they do indeed let her in. So she's calling the police inside that house. Meanwhile, back in the meadow off Robinson in the Lover's Lane area there, Jimmy had regained consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He wakes up, though, and doesn't find the killer there. Uh, he finds that his glasses are smashed, so he's not, he can't see that well. And his skull has been fractured in three uh. places. So he's bloody... He's got a a bit of a headache, Yeah, and he's disoriented. He has no glasses, so he stumbles onto nearby Richmond Road, which I think teed into Robinson Road, and he's able to flag down a passing car. Mm -hmm. The driver sees this bloody-faced man on the side of the road and zooms right by does not slow down to stop to pick him up. (sighs) That driver did, however, stop at a funeral home nearby, and he woke up the residents there. I guess it was one of those, like a family, as a house slash funeral home. Yeah. Always cozy, good for the kids. And they called the police for him. About 30 minutes later, the Bowie County Sheriff, W.H. Bill Presley, and three of his deputies got to the scene of the crime. They, by the way, were responding to the call from Mary from that nearby home, not the funeral home, which had come later. Okay. Okay. I can still tell you, I think I read it said it took about a half hour and other things that it was, it was not as long, but anyway, so the sheriff and some deputies, they get to the scene of the crime and they find Jimmy there. So he had stuck around or he'd come, or he'd come back. Remember his car is there. Right. Uh, Mary is still with the family though, had made the call, but, but they're soon reunited. But of course, again, they find no man with a suit with a pillowcase mm-hmm. over his head, of course. They did find Jimmy's pants about 100 yards from his car. So apparently he had picked them up and tossed them or ran them away. The, the assailant did before he left. I'm I, not yeah. sure. I'd, was he going to keep them as a trophy and just thought better of it and chucked them? It's not clear. Yeah. I don't know. But it, they found them well away from where he had taken them off. Both Mary and Jimmy were hospitalized for their head wounds. Mm-hmm. His were far more severe, though. And he needed several days to mm-hmm. recuperate from the multiple skull fractures that he had.
0: And several days?
1: Several days, yeah. He was in the hospital for several days. He was bad.
0: Yeah, I would think it would. I mean, I don't know. He ain't gonna be longer? Yeah.
1: This is in England in 19th century, Gary. He's on an upper crescent noble who spends months and months at the light up at home because he had a severe fever and a slight cough. Oh, no,
0: he has cracks in his head. Yes. Yeah, he
1: well, hey, it's Texas. Yeah. Walk it off. Uh, the, the attack, by the way, had taken something like five to eight minutes. In wow. Total. That's it. Oddly, or maybe not so odd, given that the mask and all the adrenaline, the descriptions of the assailant differed between Mary and Jimmy. Yeah. Mary described the white sack or the thing over his head with the cutout eyes and the mouth. Jimmy didn't get a great look at that. Because remember he was he was blinded fairly early on with a flashlight. Right. She got a better look at that. Yeah, she also said that she thought the man was black because you can see kind of around his eyes around his mouth. Okay, and that he was a light skinned black man. Okay, more weirdly, the police did not believe her about Mary saying the guy had been black. They thought she was lying. Very odd. You think they would have leapt on that and said, okay, there we go. Let's round up the usual suspects and and hang somebody. No. They thought she was lying about it. They thought she knew her attacker and was protecting him for some reason.
0: Oh, like an old boyfriend or Something
1: like that, yeah. Husband. Well, we'll we'll see in a second. Because they, again, Jimmy, whose memory also was probably hazy from the attack, wasn't clear about the whole sack over the Head part of it, but she was very clear, so they thought she made that up. And that she's claiming there was a sack of his head because then she could say, I didn't recognize him. And they thought she did recognize him. But but still, I'm pretty sure Jimmy described in the glimpse he had from a little more distance in the dark that he did describe the man with a a mask over his head. So it's not clear why they didn't believe her uh, and him as well. But what they were really getting at was kind of what you just said. They thought that possibly it was her Mm ex-husband, Mary's ex-husband. And they did indeed investigate him immediately, but they soon found that to be a dead end. And they also found that the split was completely amicable. The ex had a great alibi. It was just one of those things, they got married during the war. Yeah. They both saw that was a mistake. She was very young, he was very young too, and so they had a friendly split, no harm no foul, and he had an alibi, so they dropped that. Yeah. But still, they would go on to believe she was lying for quite some time, oddly, hmm. even when they, when the reason they thought she was lying turned out to be not true. When Jimmy was finally able to talk to the police, because he was in kind of a semi-coma for those few days, they were in for a surprise. Jimmy was sure the man was white. Oh. Quote, I think he is a white man, not over 30 years old and desperate. That man is dangerous. He's a potential murderer. The next one he gets will be killed. Evidently, he thought he killed me that night. I know he was crazy. The crazy things he said. I know his mind was warped. Jimmy thought the, the two or three vicious strikes to his head with, with the gun were intended to kill him and mm-hmm. that the, the guy thought he had killed him. It's not clear that's true. I mean, it's possible. That's very yeah. possible. But he could, remember, the headlights flashed. He got out of there in a, in a fair hurry, so that may be why he didn't go back and finish him off, whether he thought he was dead or not.
0: Yeah. Although if he was intended to kill him, why didn't he just shoot him?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Yeah, I don't know. This is his first attack. It's kind of...
0: Presumably so. Yeah,
1: presumably so at this point. You're right. Both Jimmy and Mary said that he was about six feet tall. That's about 1.8 meters, by the way. Jimmy admitted that he had mostly seen, been blinded by the flashlight, so didn't get a great look, but he still felt pretty sure of his description for being his height, his age, and his, his color. Mm-hmm. So the police had differing descriptions. They had virtually no real detail of what he looked like. You know, no hair color, no nothing like that. Yeah. And he, and yes, he had badly hurt this man and he had assaulted this young woman, but he, he had not taken much of any money. So it's kind of like, eh, they didn't really, after they found the alibi and they, and they ruled out her ex-husband, they kind of let it go. Really? Yeah. It seems, I mean, there was, there was not much of an investigation beyond that.
0: Good God.
1: No one knew it at the time, of course, but this was just the beginning of a reign of terror. In Texarkana, This was the first event in a string of attacks that would leave the town terrified. It was later be called in a in a bad movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. So uh, arguably is an event that the, the town has never really recovered, fully recovered from. They still have moonlight murder days and things like that. What? It's it's really? seared in the memory of Texarkana. Huh. Let's let's set the scene a little bit now for Texarkana itself. Okay. Because not long after World War II has ended, the country is still regrouping. There's a lot of soldiers who haven't returned yet. They're in the process of returning and going back to base and not yet out of the whatever military service they're in yet. Texarkana is a city, it's actually two cities. It straddles the border of Texas and Arkansas. So Texarkana is a portmanteau of Texas and Arkansas, as <laughs> yes, you can imagine, it is. right? It's as you might have guessed. There is one Texas. there's a Texarkana in Arkansas and there's one right immediately over the border in Texas. They're sort of twin cities. Well, that was
0: bad planning. Wow.
1: Well, this mostly takes place in the, in the Texas side, in the Texas Texarkana. The one in Arkansas is about 13,000 residents at the time, maybe has 30,000 now.
0: The one in Arkansas should be, oh, I guess you can't do it, guys. R- 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 axis Yeah. Bad. R- arc r- Arc.
1: That's why they didn't name it that, Carrie. You've just shown. You've just demonstrated why. No. No.
0: Well, Texarkana isn't... I kind of like it. Mellifluous.
1: Ah, Texarkana. I'm a Texarkansan. I like it. The Texas one is a bit bigger. It's about 20,000 people in 1946. It now has about 40,000 people. They effectively function as a single city, though, in a sense. In fact, there's a federal court building that literally straddles the two cities Hmm. on on a road, the border of the two cities. It's kind of in that hilly area of East Texas, and, and I guess that'd be West Arkansas.
0: Never and been there.
1: It's about 180 miles east of Dallas, Texas.
0: How close is it to Little Rock?
1: Less than that, but not real close. Little Rock is kind of Central, Texas, Central Arkansas. This mm. is
0: on the border with Texas. My actually. grandfather was born in Little Rock, Texas, Arkansas. Was he now? Yeah. Weird, right.
1: huh? It is weird, yeah. You yep. don't look like an Arkansan really very much at all. You've got all your teeth. Just I, kidding, Arkansas. I don't joking. think they
0: lived there for long.
1: No, I don't either, even though I don't know anything <laughs> about them. This two state town was a pretty wild place, by the way, at this time. Soldiers again were returning from the war. They had a little bit of money, had a lot of uncertainty. So mm-hmm. it was a time to be wild. There's a lot of jazz and big bands, partying <laughs> going on. is that weird? But that, that was like at the time, that was the thing that teenagers and young and 20 somethings. They listened and partied and got yeah. drunk to jazz and big bands.
0: Yeah, doing all that swing dancing. Damn
1: right they did. Crazy shit. There were some semi-secret brothels there and and booze was flowing. There's plenty to drink there, and there's also quite a bit of crime downtown. The suburbs, though, were pretty, you know, God-fearing family neighborhoods, quieter. These b- beautiful tree-lined neighborhoods. Again, this is this is pretty country. It's hilly. It's very very forested in, in, in most of it. Yes, you had that, that look. No, nope. okay.
0: Got no looks.
1: And of course, it's a very typical sultry Southern climate. You like sultry. sultry? Sultry. Yes. It's hot, <laughs> wet winter uh, summers and in...
0: oh, but it's February.
1: Yes, okay. it is. But it's sultry.
0: Not February. It's uh, no, not.
1: maybe not. I grant you, but I'm going to say, generally speaking, the Texas <laughs> kind of climate is sultry, and I stand by that.
0: Meaning hot and humid, and everything's sticky.
1: Sticky, very sticky. Yes.
0: I'm not a fan. Nor am I. Although, Although I do love the barbecue. What? Oh no, I was going to say, Southern women have good skin but bad hair.
1: Wow. They that do. Sounds like a gross a a gross generalization. B something. No, it's good.
0: Humidity is really good for your skin, but it can cause your hair to be frizzy. All right. That's, or that's me, move. it would cause my hair to just be flat and limp. <laughs> okay. So my well, skin would be great.
1: Okay. Your skin's great anyway. Well,
0: thanks. Dude. Oh. This
1: was where the man who would later be called the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer or sometimes the Moonlight Murderer or the Texarkana Moonlight Murderer, he has various names. <laughs> But he would stalk his prey and terrify these two cities. Most of the murders t- would take place on the Texas side, but the, again, they're twin cities. They're right next to each other, and it, was, it just absolutely shut them down. Hmm. We'll hear about that in a bit. Right now, though, it took this creature out there hunting people about a little over a month to begin stalking anew. It was Saturday, March twenty third, 1946. Richard Griffin, age 29... And Polly Ann Moore, age 17.
0: Wait, how old was Richard?
1: 29.
0: Are they together? They are
1: together. They are an item. They had dinner with Richard. This is
0: not okay. She's
1: a mature 17. She was said to be a feisty. She had a head of her own. And damn it, she was a mature 17, Polly Ann Mm, was. There's no such thing. Well, Polly Ann was they had dinner with Richard's sister, Eleanor, at a cafe on West 7th Street in downtown Texarkana, the Texas side. Mm-hmm. At about 10 o'clock that night, Richard left with Polly Ann in his 1941 Oldsmobile sedan. So had dinner with the sister and, and her, I think her boyfriend, and our, I don't know if it was her boyfriend or her husband, and he took off with Polly. They had been dating for about six weeks or so, Richard was only recently back from his war duty. He was a CB; those are the guys who, in the Navy, who built stuff. They built oh. ports and things like well, ports. You know, pontoon bridges. I don't know. They built stuff. Yeah, they, they're essentially naval construction battalions.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: And he was in the Pacific Theater. Polly Ann had been working at the Red River Ordnance Depot in Texarkana. Her job was checking and keeping track of ammunition. So she was one of those many, many women, very young, as you can see. She had been doing it for a little while. So she's yeah. only 17 now, and then the war had been over for a little while. So they had these teenage girls who were put to work yeah. during the World War II.
0: There's a, a TV series, was it called Bomb Girls?
1: I don't know. <sighs> Never heard of it.
0: About women, young women who worked in a munitions factory. That was her. In Canada, though. In
1: fact, she still did. This, by this point, I'm, I'm, she was still working at that. Ordinance factor because she, her family lived in Atlanta, Texas, about 25 miles away to the south. So she rented a room from her mom's cousin in Texarkana and stayed there. I think she stayed there basically almost all the time, but sometimes she'd go back and visit her family for the weekend because mm. it was close to this. Yeah. Her drive, it was too much of a commute. She didn't have her own car. Yeah. So Polly had spilled some food though on her dress during the date at the cafe, right? So Richard said, okay, I'll take you home, and you can change. And then they planned on seeing a movie at the theater, the Paramount Theater in downtown Texarkana, called Snafu. It was a hilarious send-up of wartime Army life. I think you're (laughs) going to enjoy it on TMC. (laughs) I've never heard of it. So they went to the theater, saw this late movie, and then they stopped at a cafe for a bite to eat afterwards. Mm -hmm. You hear this recurring. People did things really late. <laughs> that uh, and and they left the cafe at about two in the morning. Wow! Apparently, though, they did not leave for her home for her back to take her back to her room quite yet.
0: Hanky panky time.
1: Richard headed west on West Seventh Street. They're away away from both of the places where they lived in Texarkana. Mm-hmm. He took her to a different lovers' lane. This one was along Rich Road. It's now called South Robeson.
0: Does everybody in town know about what happened? to Mary and it was that news other guy? it was okay. news yes
1: but it had been a month ago and it was I still wouldn't be going to any lovers' no lanes. fatalities it was not it was not a huge story i don't get the impression at all okay uh, so south Robinson was also on the tech, kind of north tex Arcana on the texas side they parked their car about 100 yards south of highway 67 west near railspur and it was also very very close to a nightclub called club dallas so, I guess it's just a, a rail yard or something like that near mm. a nightclub. Not, don't, don't think city. I mean, like, like a yeah. woodsy, woodsy, you know, kind of a, a woodsy, rural nightclub. Nightclub. <laughs> woodsy nightclub. <laughs> you know what I mean? One of those nightclubs For all you the see. squirrels and raccoons. <laughs> all by itself. No, squirrel, sometimes squirrels and raccoons have a pretty good time, but not at this club. This is a human centered okay. nightclub. <laughs> okay. No, just trust me. The next morning, a driver was passing this place where they had parked a car. Eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock in the morning, maybe closer to 9, a, 9 a.m. He saw the car out there near the rail spur, near the club, and he thought that was a little odd. He thought maybe someone had passed out in the car, or maybe they had become stuck in the mud because it had been raining really hard the night and the morning before. So the motorist, it's not clear if he drove over. He didn't look, but he, he drove near it and, and became suspicious that there was no sound from the car and that it was just kind of sitting out there by itself in in this area with nothing nothing around it. So he called the police and then he continued on his way and Mm -hmm. and, and went to work. The police arrived and they did not find anyone sleeping or stuck. They found Richard and Polly Ann both dead.
0: Oh, God.
1: Richard Richard Griffin was on his knees between the two front seats of his old's his head on his hands on one of the seats. His um, pants were down around his ankles with the pockets turned out. Polly was found face down on the back seat. Okay. Is that clear? Yeah. Both had been shot twice. Clearly alarming. Yes. Once in the back and once in the back of the head. Both were clothed. Though again, Rich's pants were down, but otherwise he was clothed. Uh, and she was completely clothed. As with Jimmy Hollis, though, it seemed that the gunman had ordered Richard to take his pants off. My guess—well, my guess is he did it to neutralize him a little bit. I mean, you, the male is the more likely to fight back yeah. and to be resistance. So you make them do something that throws them off, or, or may, it's hard for them to run after you or something like that. If they have pants around their their ankles. That's my guess.
0: Well, but I thought he told Jimmy to take his pants all the way off. He did, not I mean, just pull them yes, down.
1: But he was, but his uh, Rich's pants were still on. Yeah, there was also a blanket on the ground outside the car, and I've heard two, a couple of different versions. One version has the blanket just just a little bit outside the car. The other has it about twenty feet away. Mm-hmm. But they put a blanket down. Okay, blood was congealed near the blanket. And this told the police that they had been there, that the couple had been on that blanket when they were set upon by their attacker. The police believed that Polly had been shot at the blanket and then her body was dragged back and thrown into the back seat of the car. There was, again, this, the pool of blood by the blanket they thought was hers. Okay, Griffin, they weren't sure. They weren't sure if he had been shot outside and dragged into the car where he was or was more likely he had been he was was forced to you know kneel and had been shot there yeah. in inside where where he was found so, sort of kneeling in between his you know kind of against the dashboard but his yeah. head down his on the opposite seat so it's not it's not completely clear you would think there'd be blood evidence from the car to tell if he was shot in there or not and be, and be conclusive, right. you would think. But again, I've heard two different versions. I, I, My guess is that he was shot in the car. Yeah. Because he'd be it'd be more harder difficult. to get in the car and get into a- and that get position. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a weird position. So I think he was forced to kneel and he was shot right. probably through the driver's side door while he was in the car. Although she he, was luckily shot outside at the blanket.
0: So he probably shot him first. He,
1: for sure. I'm yeah. positive he shot him yeah. first. You'll see why in a second. Unfortunately, it had been raining. Through the early morning, so some of the evidence was probably lost by that. Yeah. Also, early on, a crowd gathered. So as soon as the police got there, a crowd gathered, and the police had let them just trample all over the scene. There Course. was no evidence protection yeah. whatsoever, and they disturbed a lot of potential evidence there. One, though, one of those curious civilians had found the key to Richard's car about 50 feet away, and it appeared to be sort of stomped into the ground. Oh. So the killer took it away, a little bit away, stomped it in the ground to hide it or what? I'm not sure. Or I, I don't know. Or that why? seems odd because yeah, they weren't going to be using it. They weren't. I, I, I don't know. There were. I mean, it could have been to make sure they weren't able to use it if he hadn't killed them yet. Maybe. Yeah. Or was he just trying to? If he was just trying to hide it, you think? I don't. Like, I, I guess there wasn't any brush around, so that was the best he could do to hide it, or, and he didn't want to be found with it if just on the off chance somehow he's pulled over or something like that. So yeah. It, 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 I would guess he was trying to hide it. There were also bloodstains on the running board of the car that had flowed into the car and on the floorboard through the bottom of the door. So again, I think that would tell me that he was shot in the, the rich was shot inside the car again. Yeah, I, I, the only reason I'm not saying that with absolute certainty because nothing I read says there. Are, there is a couple of versions of it, and it's an ind- indication that the police were not completely sure where he'd been shot. There was a spent 32 shell near the car of a 32 caliber weapon, likely from a Colt pistol. The police thought the gun had been wrapped in a blanket when it was fired, presumably to muffle the sound. I'm not sure how they thought. I don't yeah. know if they found carpet fibers on it or something like that. It just I've just read that that they thought it maybe was wrapped in a blanket, and it's likely there's th- uh, probably because they weren't sure if is anyone still in Club Dallas. I mean, this was late enough right. for Club Dallas is probably closed, but who knew if there was someone still in there? Yeah, the bodies were embalmed before the FBI could become involved, right? And and even the Texas Rangers. So it was, it it's not even clear if either body was given a formal autopsy. There is debate still if either was sexually assaulted. So rumors at the time said that that Polly had been sexually assaulted, but it's, but more recent investigations have left this in doubt. Yeah, you'll hear some versions just flat out say Polly Ann was raped. This is not clear at all, and then again because her body was was embalmed early on. We'll never know. She Polly Ann also had been buried with the bullets still in her so the coroner or the police did not remove the bullets from her body before they buried her hmm. very strange the a texas ranger named jimmy gear was brought in here at this point to help with the locals in the case and he was just disgusted he was disgusted that they'd let the evidence be trampled over he was flabbergasted they they had buried her body with the bullets luckily jimmy had not been uh I'm sorry, Richard.
0: Richard. Richard. Yeah.
1: Luckily luckily Richard had not been buried yet, so they were able to get the gun the bullets from his body. And they found they were also thirty-two caliber bullets from an automatic or semi-automatic pistol, probably a colt, which was a very common weapon yeah. at the time. So it didn't help all a whole lot in that regard. About. Right. There was no sign of robbery, and again, possibly no sexual assault, but there could have been sexual assault. The police found no evidence of anyone holding a grudge against Richard or Pollyann. There was no apparent familial concern that this 29-year-old Richard had been dating right. 17-year-old Pollyann. So there's just no, you know, no evidence that any kind of a targeting in this murder.
0: Did they murders. connect it to the earlier one immediately? Not really. Wow. Yeah, I know.
1: The response, though, was pretty overwhelming. The city police, the state Department of Public Safety. Uh, the two county sheriff's departments on either side of the border all began an investigation. They were joined by the FBI not too long later. And within three days, law enforcement had interviewed 50 to 60 potential witnesses, many from the Club Dallas. I guess it was sort of letting out. They had interrogated those folks. And they put up a $500 reward for any information. They chased down 100 leads, but none of them checked out. So pretty quickly, the case had gone cold. Yeah. Mary Jean Larry, she heard about this event Yeah. in Oklahoma, where she is now living, and she immediately went to Texarkana, and she told the police she was sure that this attack was related to the attack upon, upon Good her. Good for
0: Mary Larry.
1: The police scoffed. Oh, my God. Said, you're crazy, girl. And besides, remember, they thought and still thought that she'd been lying about knowing her attacker. And that maybe she's just trying to, you
0: know, right.
1: Cloud it there in that sense. So and and they also felt she didn't have any credibility. So solid police work here. They did not. Yeah. That's why I delayed answering your questions. They did not connect the two yeah. murders. In fact, thought they were completely unrelated. But they hmm. were not, as we know now, and as they would know very soon. Betty Joe Booker was only fifteen years old but she was a skilled musician. She played the saxophone.
0: Oh, wow. That's not easy.
1: No. And despite her youth, she played with a local band.
0: Wow, All of them adults, a
1: full-on band that had gigs called Jerry Atkins and his (laughs) Rhythmaires. Great name, by the way. A lot of musicians were still overseas, or they were still in the army or what have you. And so Bay Joe was an integral part of this band. She played all their gigs. Yeah they regularly played to the early morning hours. Her mom let her play because the band leader, Jerry Atkins was almost like an older brother to her. And he always made sure she got home safe every time they had a late night gig. And, and she wasn't worried at all about Uh her playing with these bands at these clubs until morning. And often they they would finish. She would always take her sacks home. So Jerry would drive her home. She'd drop her sacks off with her mom, tell her mom, and she'd either stay home or sometimes she'd go back out because they were meeting at a diner. The whole band would, you know, talk about the night and stuff like that. Yeah. Split up the, the earnings and she would go out with them. But Jerry always made sure she got home safe. By the way, Betty Jo, a little bit of background on her. She had won the coveted Miss Tiny Texarkana title at age three. Oh. Because in the American South, believes this is a, a healthy and appropriate thing to have. Yeah,
0: to this day.
1: Horrifying. So on, I'm sorry, South, but really seriously. And I guess well, the, who else did they have? It this?
0: doesn't only happen in the I, South. You're right. I'm, it happens I all say over that. the country.
1: Super, super creepy and unhealthy. Three years old. Miss Tiny Texarkana. <laughs> That's just so wrong in many, many ways. On Saturday night, April 13th, 1946, the band had a gig at the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club near downtown Texarkana. It was on West Fourth and Oak Street. On this night, though, band leader Jerry Atkins was not going to have to give Betty Jo a ride home because her friend, Paul Martin, 17 years old, was 16 or 17. I've seen both 16 or 17. Let's say he was 17. He was going to come get her. He's going to come fetch her and he'd he'd be responsible to take her home. He and Betty Jo were old friends. He had grown up in Texarkana. He now lived in Kilgore, Texas, about 100 miles southwest of Texarkana. But he was, he borrowed his brothers or a car. He is coming up and hanging out. For a couple of days in Texarkana, staying at a friend's house, Tom Albritton, and visiting various friends. And he had got a hold of Betty Joe's parents and arranged to go pick her up at that gig at the Veterans of Foreign War Saturday night, I guess late Sunday morning, and drive her home and just, you know, catch up.
0: Sure. That was the idea.
1: He was visiting. She, they, were, they were had been good friends in high school.
0: Mm-hmm. So Okay, she's 15. Yeah. She he was 16 even, or
1: 17. I know. I think he was just a grade ahead of her, I believe. I'm making that up, but I'm assuming yeah. so. <laughs> but okay. he got there, Paul got there about 1.30 in the morning, and the gig was nearly over at the, the Veterans of Foreign War Club. So Paul and Betty Jo chatted with the band for a little bit after the gig was over, and they left about 2 in the morning. Paul was supposed to drive Betty Jo to her house to put that, precious sacks away and also check in with her mom and they had told her mom earlier that they were going to go out after that He'd, she'd bring back the sacks they're going to go out either to they had a friends they had some mutual friends that were having a slumber party or they might just go to a diner and okay. because that's what you did i get <laughs> at and two I in the morning
0: we're 15 year olds older In 1946, than now it they turns are out they're both
1: 15. They're always 15. 15-year-olds are always 15-year-olds. I mean, no matter.
0: we have ever let any of our oh, 15-year-olds? Oh
1: no! So they just lied to us. <sighs> uh, so that, that's fine. But instead of taking her home, Paul convinced Betty Jo to go to a quiet road by Spring Lake Park, <sighs> which is up in the northern part again of Texarkana, Texas. Which was at this time still pretty semi rural, just a few homes here and there. There's a few homes and a lot of quiet in this part of Tex at the time. We know what's going on
0: there. Mm-hmm. It's
1: another Lover's Lane. It's mm-hmm. the third one.
0: Wait, what and what's the date of this? This
1: is oh,
0: last one was late March.
1: This is this is <laughs> April thirteenth. It's been about three weeks. Okay. Betty Joe's mom woke up. Early in the morning, later on, and she realized Betty Jo had not come home to yep. bring her sacks like she always did. Her husband said, you know, her, which is Betty Jo's stepfather, by the way. Oh, okay. He had taught her how to play piano and taught her music, so she was very close to him. But he said, you know, no, they're fine. They just probably forgot. Don't embarrass them by calling around and, and just they'll be home soon. Don't worry about it. But she kept waking up. And she finally said, screw it. And she called the slumber party house. Yeah. And they found out that Paul and Betty Jo had never been there. Ugh. So she's freaked out there. She's terrified. Now it's the early morning, April 14th, 1946, the day after the gig. It's about 6.30 in the morning. G.H. Weaver... So, this is the same morning from when from right. the gig ended, just to be mm-hmm. clear. So, four and a half hours after they had left the club, G.H. Weaver and his wife were out walking with their young son. Uh oh. They stumbled onto a body lying on its, on its left side on the north shoulder of North Park Road. This is very near where they had parked. Both Sheriff Bill Presley of Bowie County and the Texarkana Texas Chief named, oh, oh gosh, named Runnels answered the call that w- that was made when this body was found. In fact, they had been having breakfast together. Oh. when the call came convenient. in. Convenient. So they both went out there with some deputies and some cops and they found a trail of blood and some congealed blood by or on a fence on the opposite side of the road where Paul's body was found. Okay? So they, they assumed or they guessed that he had been shot on that side of the road and had crawled across the right. road before he died. He had been shot through the nose, in the hand, through the left third and fourth rib, and then at the back of the neck. So wow. defensive wounds, yeah, uh, frontal wounds, with, and then fallen down, kill shot in right. the back of the neck and that he had bled out on the opposite side of the road. Wow. They shut down the scene effectively this time to prevent a redux of what had happened previously at the Griffin Moore scene. They also found, in addition to the blood, they had found the tracks of a man along the tracks, but smaller tracks. Uh, so, um, so I'm guessing that it was the man chasing down Paul, and Paul's were the smaller tracks. He's very young. That's, that's my yeah. guess. I I've not read someone say that outright. But and and the larger tracks were the tracks of the killer, right? But they lost the tracks, the larger tracks, in the brush nearby, and they couldn't follow him anywhere. Mm-hmm. The police soon found out, though, that Paul had been out with Betty Joan. and he'd picked her up earlier that morning. So right. at, at first, right, they come upon a scene they, that's it. It's this just kid him. was killed. Yeah. They didn't know They're, they should be looking for someone else as well. But they find out pretty quickly, so the search was on immediately. For this teenager out by herself. They didn't know what had happened to her. Maybe she was kidnapped. So the sheriff actually started picking people out of the again, a crowd starts. Yeah. And and he starts picking people that he knew and he trusted and said, Go out and look for Betty Joe. Here's a description of her. Get out there. Okay. Soon the search was citywide, and various people were out there searching. Joining the search was the Boyd family and their family friend Ted Sheppey. So they started walking around looking for any sign. And it was that group that found Betty Jo around noon, almost six hours after Paul was found. Her body was about two miles, 3.2 kilometers, to the north of Paul's body on Fernwood Drive. Her body had been partially hidden behind a tree. That's why it took so long to find her. She was clothed. She was lying on her back. Her right hand was in her pocket of her coat, and it was still buttoned up. Or it had been rebuttoned. We don't know, but it was buttoned. Yeah. She had been so- shot in the chest and in the face. Wow. She, like Paul, had defensive wounds that indicated she had struggled with her attacker. So, but again, Paul had the defensive wound, so, yeah. so did she. As with the previous attacks, the weapon used was a thirty two caliber automatic Colt pistol. And this time, for sure, Betty Jo had been raped. Wow. Notice, though, these are bodies being found, right? Yeah. Where's the car? Paul's 1946 Ford Club coupe was found three miles, about 4.8 kilometers from Betty Joe's body, which is about one and a half miles or 2.5 kilometers from Paul's body. So it, it, huh. they were, none of them were in the same place. They were all well away. The killer had left it just outside Spring Lake Park, and the keys in the ignition. It was not clear how the car had gotten there. Yeah but it's likely the killer drove it there after disposing of his victims and walked to his own vehicle. So he must have, I presume they they were in Spring Lake Park. They had parked at Spring Lake Park for some necking. Yeah. And he had, but he must have taken them both obviously at one point. He presumably killed Paul first. Did Paul bolt out of the car and try to run away? And yeah. he shot him, possibly. And then whether he had tied up or what have you with Buddy Joe, he still was able to control her, and uh, he took her to a different location, raped her, and killed her, and then took the car back to Spring Lake Park, where he must have parked his car not too far away right. so he could walk to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Autopsies indicated that both victims had, as I mentioned, fought their attacker, but it was not clear who had been murdered first, so I'm, I'm guessing on the sequence I just said. Yeah. Family and friends could not think of any enemies that the two had had. No one came to mind for, yeah, they these people wanted to do them harm. At first, Betty Joe's saxophone was missing. It was not found. So they thought, uh, they probably didn't think this, but you, you might think had the murder taken a trophy. This was before the whole serial killer idea right. was existing and the whole idea of trophies. But you'd think that it was found, however, six months later uh, on October 24th it's still in its faux leather case. It had just been hidden in some brush very near to where Buddy Joe's body was found. So oh, like the keys, okay. huh. he tried to hide those. He had hidden the saxophone. In this in this case, he had hidden it quite well. It wasn't found for six months.
0: Why? Why not just leave it in the car? That's weird.
1: That's a good question. The reward went up to $1,700. And there was a little bit of hard evidence here. There was the bullet casings again from the thirty-two caliber pistol. There was the fact that Betty Joe had been raped. And there were some fingerprints found on the steering wheel of Paul's car that were not from Paul or Betty Joe or anyone else that had access to that right. car. All of this evidence, though, was kept mostly from the press, including the fact that she was sexually assaulted. Also kept from the newspapers was the fact that the police quickly matched the casings from these murders to the earlier murders. Yeah. So they now know that they were dealing with a repeat killer. Let's talk about the investigations and rumors a little bit. After the killings of Betty Joe, Booker, and Paul Martin, the rumors that were went nuts, right? It was, Texarkana was terrified. There was a murderer in their midst, and there was no sense of, again, a serial killer in the popular psychology, but they just felt threatened and felt like there was some kind of a repeat killer who, who yeah. might act again. Herbert Wren, he was 11 years old at the time and living in Texarkana, he would later speak to this change that overcame the city and said, quote, it changed our community overnight. Before that, youngsters never felt threatened or uncomfortable anywhere. Now young people were in potential danger at night almost anywhere. The Miller County deputy sheriff named Tillman Johnson later said, quote, we were constantly getting calls, mostly at night, about prowlers. People would call about any noise they heard at all. Yeah. I'll talk more about this later, but it was nuts. And the press helped a lot because they called the killer the phantom killer wow. or the phantom slayer. It appeared that the phantom Former, the phantom killer name, appeared in a headline by the Texarkana Daily News on April 16th. And others just called him simply simply the phantom. So the allusion apparently was to his ability to escape the police. So not surprising, this ratcheted up fear in the town. Because they gave him this sense of hopelessness. Like, we have no chance. The police can't catch this guy. He's a phantom. He's uncatchable. That Some master criminal was was in their midst and beyond the reach of the police and the city and state authorities, so they were terrified. A description of the perpetrator came from the initial victims. Now, you remember Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry, and but remember those were vague and conflicting, the whole six feet tall, either light-skinned black man or, or a tanned white man, maybe 30-ish years old. wasn't helpful yeah. at all. After the murders of Betty Joe and Paul Martin, the local authorities asked the Texas Rangers in for help formally, And they sent this semi-legendary Lone Wolf Manuel Gonzalez. He was this (laughs) handsome, very media-friendly detective, very confident in his own skills. He had two pistols on his belt and was said to have killed over 75 men during his storied career. Of course. He would hold countless press conferences during this entire time of the investigation. He even told one reporter that his nickname of Lone Wolf was because he, quote, went into a lot of fights by myself, and I came out by myself, too. So he was a clown mm-hmm. and he was very clearly more interested in his own reputation yeah. and his own legend than he was in catching a killer. I'm sure he did want to catch the killer, but he didn't. Yeah. So the police thought they were dealing with this master master criminal, right? Captain Gonzalez said, quote, he was a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities. He was a quote cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. Uh, no sit. No yeah. shit,
0: Captain. Like every other I mean, criminal come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so again, you're playing up though the guy yeah. you think you're going to catch. You're playing him up as this genius criminal, yeah. you know. The, he, I'm sure he loves the the fact that the newspapers are calling him the Phantom because he's going to catch that Phantom. Yeah. The police also believed he was a sexual pervert of some kind, even though they were not telling the public that he had raped Betty Jo. Right. But remember, he had also assaulted Mary. A majority of the forty-seven officers. On, that we were eventually on the case, agree with this, that he was some kind of a, quote, a sex maniac and was yeah. a victim of sex mania. One of the officers stated, quote, I believe that a sex pervert is responsible. There was even something of an early criminal profiling attempt by a guy named Dr. Anthony LaPaula. He was a psychologist at the federal penitentiary in Texarkana. He thought the perpetrator would continue to attack, that he planned his attacks carefully, and that all the murders now, and there'll be more in the future, were the same person. So he felt this yeah. was a serial killer, what we now call a serial killer. He guessed that the murderer, the killer was in his mid-30s to 50s, motivated by sex, was sadistic, but also shrewd and would ultimately be difficult to catch. He might also be leading a perfectly normal life and could be anyone's neighbor, totally unsuspecting that the person who lived next door to you was this murderer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He also, by the way, cleared all black people. Because oh. he felt that, quote, in general, Negro criminals are not clever.
0: <gasps>
1: so there was that guy. Ooh. Dr. Idiot Anthony Love I mean, this is this is one of the first cases I've ever read about. Well, he's clearly, he's criminal, pro, what we now call right. profiling. Yeah. And it's about as useful as profiling is now, in my uh, yeah. jaded opinion of that. False alarms brought panic. One group of boys got their car stuck in the mud on their way back home to Texarkana. And they... When they dragged them, their muddy, tired selves into town the next day, they found the police in full search mode for them
0: Oh, all yeah. over
1: town. Their parents had been frantically calling. I bet. One couple at home thought they saw a body in the road outside their home, so they called the police. The police got there, and they found a 50-year-old kid passed out from getting drunk. <laughs> the state of Texas sent like a mobile radio, radio unit to Texarkana, and they furnished two-way radio equipment for, quote, a fleet of prowl cars. So this is, by the way, we heard about this in the Mad Gazer of Mattoon episode that had happened two years before. And and we were some was that a big deal? It seemed like a big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah, It was like this technological advancement and allowed the instant communication between cars and the stations. And the state also sent out a forensic team and they sent out investigators to help Question yeah. potential witnesses. So they took it very, very seriously. That's good. Eventually, by the way, the story would go national, and the mutual broadcasting service in New York would come to town and they broadcast to the 315 stations nationwide about this Texarkana killer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The police begged citizens to come forward with anyone they might suspect.
0: Oh, so great. turn
1: in your neighbor or friend yeah. if you think they're the killer. If the killer did not live alone, they said, they, they asked anyone in the area to come forward if. You know, he was gone. He didn't right. have an alibi, essentially, at the important times. The May 11th Texarkana Gazette relayed this message, quote, Somebody in Texarkana or in Bowie or Miller Counties, Miller County, by the way, is on the Arkansas side, knows that somebody else was, quote, out of pocket on the nights of February 22-23, March 23-24, April 13-14, and May 3rd. We'll hear about that in a little while, in the next episode, actually. And, and it's still quoting. And Sheriff W.H. Presley and Chief of Police Jack Runnels want persons having such knowledge to report to them immediately. So if you're whatever... Turning your husband. <laughs> turning your husband. turning or your Your dad. son, your dad, whatever. If they yeah. went out sort of mysteriously on those nights where there was murders. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, yeah. you should if you think. But God, can you imagine the awkwardness if they no. are cleared? The police even threatened criminal charges against anyone who held back such information. Wow. And it was later discovered. Yeah. Quote, persons who have such information and have been withholding it when they know they should report it are leaving themselves open to possible charges of complicity in the event the slayer is captured. So you better turn them in.
0: Uh-huh. If you find
1: out you didn't, you're in trouble. They also put the fear of doubt in the heads of these readers. Quote, bear in mind, this killer may strike at anyone. He may strike at persons close to him. For that reason, we believe any person with information that may lead us to the murderer should act in the interest of self-preservation. So if you don't turn him in, they're going to kill you. He's
0: going to get you.
1: A curfew was called across the town to shut down everything at midnight Saturday night until the killer was caught. So no more midnight movies, which were very popular at the time. Diners, for the most part, shut down around 10.30 at night just yeah. to be safe. And a testament to how serious this was taken, no one broke this curfew. Yeah. So kids weren't going out breaking curfew very much at all. They took it very seriously. And then they started staying in. Yeah. So Texarkana was already in panic mode. But as we'll find out next time, the Phantom Killer was not quite done. That is the end of part one. Wow. We're bringing you part two, where he continues his reign of terror We'll also talk about uh, the panic that ratcheted up even more in Texarkana. And then, of course, we'll talk about who might have done it. So there are some theories. As I mentioned at the front, this is yeah. an unsolved mystery. It will be unsolved. There is one hmm. pretty serious candidate that a lot of people who investigate us do think is the, the perpetrator. But it is, it's not an open and shut case at all. Okay. So until then, Carrie, tell them the usual stuff.
0: Oh, you know, you can write us an email at weirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, Patreon, and um, Weird World Pod on Twitter. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Until next time, see you.
0: Bye.